Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you're a speaking God. We pray that you will speak your truth to us, that we may live our lives for the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesians chapter 1, we're starting a new series, um, really on Christ's new community. Christ's new community. And if you want, um, there's a sermon series card at the, at the back, so if you want to study ahead or study the passages before, do take one with you um, there that will have all the details of the, uh, the, the sermon series that's coming up. I don't know if you've heard of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a former special counselor for President Richard Nixon. Uh, from 1969 to 1973. He was most famous for his water role in the, in the Watergate scandal. As you know, as a result of the scandal, Nixon became the only U.S. president who has resigned from his office. And at that time, seven of his closest advisors then were imprisoned. He went, they went to prison, and Colson was one of them. But a, a year before he went to prison, He became a Christian, and in 2008, he wrote a little piece reflecting on how he became a Christian and the time of his conversion, and this is what he wrote. After talking to Tom, I found that when I got to the automobile to drive away, I couldn't. I was crying too hard, and I was not one ever to cry. I spent an hour calling out to God. I did not even know the right words. I simply knew that I wanted him, and I knew for certain the God who created the universe made me cry, made, heard my cry. And from the next morning to this day, I had never looked back. I can honestly say that the worst day of the last 35 years has been better than the best days of the 41 years that preceded it. And that's a pretty bold statement. Given my time in prison, three major surgeries, and two kids with cancer at the same time. But it is absolutely true. And that's because for the last 35 years, whether in pain, suffering, joy, or jubilation, it makes no difference. I know that there was a purpose. I have have known that I belong to Christ and that I am here on earth to advance his kingdom. It's an extraordinary confession that the worst days of the 35 years as a Christian has been better than the best days of the 41 years before his conversion. And as he says, it's not like he had just only the good times after he became a Christian. In fact, right after he became a Christian, he headed straight into prison. And as he says, he has undergone three major surgeries, and two of his kids had cancer at the same time, he says. And yet, he says... This confession is absolutely true. Praise is found on his lips, whether in pain, suffering, joy, jubilation, he says, for he knows that he belongs to Christ. He knows who he is and what he is made, he is made for. And I think this is a great introduction to the letter to Ephesians. Paul knows, Paul knows this church very well, the Ephesian church very well, having lived about three years in this city. 
Um, and he had his heart for the church, and we can see, we can hear his heart, um, especially as we read Acts 20, as he departs from the, uh, the Ephesian elders. But now he is far from them. Paul is most likely riding from his house arrest in Rome, awaiting his trial. His physical vision is obstructed by four walls that surround him. But you wouldn't know that. Uh, by reading what he says. So, after the customary greetings in uh, verses 1 to 3, praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus. Uh, th- these are his first words, sorry. After the customary greetings in verse 3, these are his first words. Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessings in Christ. So praise is found on his lips. Praise, the, 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 uh, praise God the Father. And did you hear for every spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm? In verses 3 to 14, it doesn't say that in, in, your, in your Bibles, but it's actually a gigantic, long, run-on sentence without any punctuation, without any break in between. It's just one sentence, the whole two paragraphs there. It's as if he's so excited that he doesn't want to take a breath while he does it. He's filled with praises and sees beyond the four walls. In fact, his vision is of a cosmic scale. It reaches all the way back to the very beginning of time in verse 4. Before the creation of the whole world, all the way to the end, to the fullness of time in verse 10. My friend suggested that I play the theme theme song for Star Wars as I, as, I, as, I read, as we read this passage. Because he says that is the tone of this letter and that is the tone of this beginning. It's cosmic in its scale, it's triumphant, and it's filled with praise. And the whole Godhead, the whole three persons of the Trinity, is involved in this blessing as well. God the Father elects, the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit seals us for the future. And so, don't you want to know what made Paul sing in his prison cell? And the first place where he spells out that blessing is by turning to the thought of God's unconditional grace in election in verse 4. So take a look at verse 4. He starts there. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then the word chosen and predestined are there But more importantly, the idea of um, being chosen is found throughout the passage. God is actually the subject of almost every single main verb in the sentences, in the paragraph there. God blesses, he chooses, he predestines, he gives his grace, he forgives sins and makes his mystery known, puts the plan into effect brings all things under Jesus Christ um, and marks us with the Holy Spirit. This is about, this passage is about God's unilateral action and grace carried out in Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul sings in the prison cell, in his house arrest, for the doctrine of election focuses entirely on God's unconditional action of grace. 
in Jesus Christ. It's an incredible thing to know that our salvation rests on the goodness of God in Christ. That our fickle minds and hearts have nothing to do with our ultimate destiny. Imagine, imagine if salvation rested on the condition of your heart right now, in the holiness, in your holiness right now. Imagine if your salvation rested on how much improvement you made during your lifetime. There's no assurance there. And what Paul says here is, our assurance rests squarely on God's unconditional election of grace in Christ Jesus. And we believe in this unbelievable love because the Bible tells us so. The doctrine of election is divine revelation and not human speculation. And it tells us that God loves us unconditionally. But I also understand that this is also a very difficult doctrine. So let me give us some warnings about what the doctrine does not mean, doctrine of election and predestination. First, it doesn't mean that we just sit here and do nothing. And we know this from our experience. We know that our will is intact. And when we become a Christian, we have to turn to Christ and willingly follow him. If someone mutters, but I I, I chose God, our answer must be that yes, you did. You chose God and you did it freely. But only because God has chosen you first, before the creation of time. But because God had opened our eyes so that we may see him and turn to him. When vast others remain blind around us. And correspondingly, this also doesn't mean that we, doesn't mean that we don't do evangelism. We don't tell others about Jesus. Evangelism is God's preordained means by which God brings people to himself. The thing is, it's true that our eyes are blind. It's true that we are dead in our transgressions. But it's also true that God has elected some people to turn to him. And actually, it's only that... That which gives us hope for evangelism. See, our salvation does not depend, is not determined by one's character or how open-minded one is or one's background, nationality or even the exposure to the gospel. Salvation comes because God has graciously set people apart for himself. No matter their state of mind, race, knowledge, or background. So we preach the gospel to to everyone around us. For we can't be sure who God, who, who will respond to this message. It might be that the most ignorant and the most hostile people to the gospel, most uh, 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 the people who, are, who we, we think are most closed-minded, it might be those people whom God has selected for himself. And it's only that which gives us hope for evangelism in the first place. So we preach the gospel faithfully and ceaselessly to everyone around us. 
And thirdly, we're chosen, and this should make us humble before God. There are some Jewish people who have a strange notion that because they are chosen, chosen people of God, that they somehow are superior to others. And actually, some of that has come into the Christian culture as well. But being one of the elect is no ground for boasting. Israel was elect not because they were good, not because they were even numerous, according to Deuteronomy 7, but because God is love. God elects because he is love. God chooses because he is love. Christians turn to Christ not because we're somehow better than others, because somehow we're more open-minded and kinder than others, but because God is love and God has shown his grace to us. The doctrine of election removes any ground for boasting. But once again, it does give us the greatest sense of assurance. Our election does not depend on our mood, our action, our merit, or our character. Our salvation hinges on the nature of God. And as we pray in the prayer of humble access every uh, communion Sunday, God is the one whose nature is always to have mercy. And that is where our assurance rests, in the richness of mercy in the Son. So we're chosen, but we're chosen for a purpose. Paul tells us that we're chosen to be holy and blameless in verse 4. Now, I don't know if you struggle with personal holiness. I do. It's as if I have to put on new clothes every morning because by end of the day, my soul is soiled. I catch myself thinking a thought or reacting in an ungracious, unchristlike manner. Telling a small lie without any apparent reason. Or sometimes are filled with pride and other times filled with insecurity. And then I realize that my personal holiness It's just really a very, very thin veneer. And really, inside, there's a lot of rottenness. See, if you struggle with holiness, if you strive to shed your old clothes and to put on the new clothing of holiness, then Paul proclaims this good news for you in verse 4. He chose us in Jesus before the creation of the whole world for us to be holy and blameless in His sight. Actually, did you catch that, 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 that the last, last few words? In His sight. Because that's an extraordinary, uh, that's an extraordinary thought. It might be relatively easy to be deemed holy and blameless in the sight of other people. It's easy. Pastors do it all the time. You pretend. But it's harder to be deemed holy and blameless in your own, own sight, isn't it? We know our hearts. We know our thoughts. We know what goes on in our minds. But Paul promises that we are chosen To be holy and blameless, not in the sight of others, not in the sight, not even in the sight of ourselves, but in the sight of Him, in His sight, in the One who sees everything, 
in the one whose opinion matters. And this is an impossible thing to do on our own. For there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one in the world who, who, who would not wish to find the smallest hole and cover themselves when the Lord Jesus apply, uh, appears, uh, appears again. There is not even one except but for the saving grace of Christ. God has chosen us to be holy and blameless in His sight. And we are already holy and blameless in His sight in Christ. And the thing is, the reason for this holiness, the reason that God has chosen us to be holy and blameless in His sight is for, for, for relationship. For, for us to be able to have this relationship with Him. For God wants us, wants us to live in His house as His children. So turn to verse 5. He says, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. You know, in the Roman law, in which the Paul is writing, um, no, just stay there. <laughs> um, uh, in his writing, adopted children enjoyed the same rights as natural children. The price, but there is a price for adoption. So Paul immediately explains how it happens in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace he has lavished upon us, on us. So God elects us, God adopts us as, as His holy and blameless children. That election of us means God's election of His Son to be sin. Election of His Son to be our redemption. And that word redemption means deliverance by a payment of a price. I, after graduating uh, from um, uh, college and, and later on, I owned I owed a little a small credit card debt. It took me about three months to pay back when I started to work, but it seemed like such a big burden to me. And even now, I have this a uh, little bit of a student loan that I'm paying back. I mean, it it it'll weigh down on me for the next I think six years. But have you ever owed a debt that you can't pay back? Do you remember how that feels? Imagine you owe a debt that has the price tag of your life. And you try every day to pay back this debt. But to no avail. Throughout your lifetime, the debt increases rather than decreases. It's an impossible situation. But for Him. But in Him. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The deliverance by a payment of a price. And that price tag is spelled out for us, isn't there? Redemption through His blood. We're made to be holy and blameless children of God. And that end is secure because Christ was crucified for us. 
And so Paul sings in his prison cell. He knows the blessings of the heavenly realms. He sees it. He sees the reality of it. So he praises God. That's how, why his first words uh, in, in his letter, writing from a prison cell, is praise God. So we're chosen to be holy and blameless children of God. But there's even a deeper blessing here. So look down to verse 9. It says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the time will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Well, what Paul says here is that history is not a random sequence of events, that it's going somewhere. It has a goal. It's heading towards all things being united, all things coming together under the headship of Christ. Although the world now is divided into different nations, properties belong to different people, politicians claim power over different districts, in the end, all will belong to Christ. And all will recognize Jesus as their master. And then comes another blessing for us in verse 11. Look at verse 11. In Him, in Him we were chosen, having, having been predestined according to the plan, to the plan. That in him we're chosen, as you see in the NIV uh, little footnote, if you have an NIV translation there, the footnote will say that in him we're made heirs. Is a better translation there. In him we become inheritors. Those who receive inheritance of God. Heirs of what? The answer is in verse 10, in our previous verse. All things in heaven and on earth. All things that belongs to Christ, we will inherit. Just as Adam and Eve were given the whole world for their enjoyment. In the end, it will once again be given, everything will be given to the people of God. And Paul praises God for the blessings in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in verse 3. But it will not always be so. It will not always remain spiritual. In, 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 in Revelations, in, in chapter 20 and 21, the heavens come down to earth. This heaven will become earthly reality. And the saints will inherit his kingdom. And that is why, once again, Paul sings in his house arrest, isn't it? Although he is confined to the four walls that surround him, although his physical sight cannot reach beyond those walls, his spiritual eyes can see the whole world. He knows that the whole world, everything under heaven and on earth, will belong to the people of Christ for their enjoyment. The richness of the richest person on earth will pale in comparison to those riches we will inherit. So the poverty-stricken Paul knows that in due time, heaven will come down to earth. The whole earth will be available for his enjoyment. And this isn't daydreaming. This isn't Paul just thinking. We're made heirs according to his will in order that we, 
in verse 12, who refers to hope in Christ. It's to that hope to which we're called. And that hope is real. It's mystery revealed to us. And no wonder Paul is content all the time. He knows that he belongs to the group of people who will inherit. He will receive much more than he can ask or imagine, which is a phrase found in Ephesians. No wonder he could devote his entire life for the praise of his glory. And all that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, by the presence of the Holy Spirit with us now. So look to verse 13. The next point. Look to verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. My books have my name on it. So if you borrow them, you're very welcome to borrow them, but you will always know that you're borrowing my books, that you have my books, that you will give them back to me at some point. When we heard the gospel preached, and when we believed, in verse 13, we were marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. Seal of the Spirit of the promise forever. The Spirit that was promised that was prophesied in the Old Testament. That the spirit that Jesus promised to us is given to everyone who repents and believes in Jesus. This is God's way of saying, you are mine. I mark you with the Holy Spirit. You are mine. The Spirit guarantees that we are going to be fully redeemed, made holy and blameless, become inheritors. That we are His. But actually, the Spirit is more than that in verse 14. In, in verse 14, Paul says, He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption, day of redemption. But that word deposit is well, in the, in the modern days, it's used in modern Greek, um, it's, it's used uh, to describe an engagement ring. Um, to the promise, to, a promise of what's, what's to come in the future. But actually, in the, in, 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 in the days of the past when Paul was writing, it was actually more than that. It's actually the first installment or a down payment that pays a part of the purchase price. Uh, this is, John, uh, this is uh, John, how John Stott explains it. John Stott, um, a famous um, rector of all sorts and uh, um, theologian. <laughs> An engagement ring promises marriage but is not itself a part of the marriage. A deposit on a house or, a, or in a higher purchase agreement, however, is more than a guarantee of the payment. It is itself the first installment of the purchase price. So it is with the Holy Spirit. The receiving of an engagement ring is not part of the marriage. The receiving of the Holy Spirit is actually a part of what is to come, what is yet to come. The sense of God with us now that we have in the Holy Spirit, the transforming and sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit that is with you now, the assurance of salvation that you have in your heart, the sense of intimacy with God that you have because of the Holy Spirit, 
are all a part of the fullness of redemption that will come at the end of the day. Isaiah prophesied that the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in Isaiah 11. And in a way, that, that, that sentence doesn't make much sense if you think about it. How can the waters cover the sea? The sea is made up of water, isn't it? But this isn't a slip of tongue. It's Isaiah. It's, it's, it's as if Isaiah is saying that the whole earth, everything that is in this universe, is a receptacle for God's present, presence. Everything that is on earth will be drenched and soaked in God's presence. And everything will sing God's glory. My father um, truly repented and turned to Christ. And he saw the world differently. He said that the world looked different. It, it looked as if the swaying trees of the world and the rocks um, on the side of the street were singing God's praise. And that's how the end will be. As the waters cover the sea, the whole world will be drenched in God's presence. And we taste a little bit of that presence with the Holy Spirit. When we receive the Holy Spirit, but the best is yet to come. And Paul knows this, so he sings. But lest you think that in your self-centered way, that God has done all this for you, Paul has sprinkled reminders of the reason for this election. It's in verses 6, 12, and 14. So let's look at it. Verse 6, in the very beginning, to the praise of His glorious grace. In verse 12, towards the end, for the praise of His glory. And verse 14, in the very end, to the praise of His glory. God has done all of this for the praise of of his glory. You might bristle at the thought that God does this for himself. It seems selfish. But actually that ignores the fundamental difference between you between us and God. God is the source of all goodness and all glory. In order to in order for for him to rejoice in himself, rejoice, he has to rejoice in himself. He's the source of everything good. For us, it's different. We're dependent. We're dependent on God. In fact, we become miserable when we become self-centered and self-seeking, don't we? There's a paradox here. When we become less self, when we become less self-centered, when we become other people-oriented, when we become God-oriented, it's actually at that point we rejoice. In fact, we all want to live for something greater than ourselves, don't we? Although the world encourages relentless selfishness, in our hearts there is a longing to live for something greater than ourselves, and that is by God's design. We are meant to live for Him. We're meant to live in Him, depending on Him, for His glory. And when we do, It brings a sense of purpose, belonging, contentment, and praise. So this week, and for the rest of your lives, in all things that you do, in all things you do, 
whether you eat, study, sleep, work, um, walk around and relax, set your mind on the heavenly realities, heavenly realm, and do all for God's glory. And this letter is not written just for individuals. It's written for this church, for the church of Ephesians, and for, for this church, the body of Christ. God has elected this body before the creation of the world to be his body, to be made blameless and holy in him. Before the creation of the world, God brought us together um, that, that, that we may, uh, that we may uh, be redeemed and purchased by his blood to seal us by the Holy Spirit. And as we remind ourselves of all of that, I hope as a church we'll do everything for the praise of his glory. Amen.